I'm Jesse Lubinsky. I'm Donnie Piercy. Hi, I'm Jeffrey Heil, host of the Partial Credit Podcast, a part of the Education Podcast Network. Just like the show you're listening to now. Shows on the network are individually owned and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other interesting education podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. You're listening to the Ed Creation Podcast. We bring you stories from educational leaders about the instructional movements resources, tools, and practices that are reshaping learning. Hi, everyone. This is your host, Christy Hemingway, and today's guest, Luke Butcher, is an educator who focused for much of his teaching career on special education and supporting struggling learners, a passion which has led Luke to his current role at International Dyslexia Learning Solutions, IDL for short. IDL has been creating and providing groundbreaking personalized literacy learning interventions for years, resources that are being used with game-changing success all over the world. But literacy is not IDL's only focus. We reached out to IDL and Luke to help us better understand the students who struggle with numbers in the same ways that students with dyslexia struggle with letters and words. Dyscalculia is something that surprisingly few educators know much, if anything, about. I'd seen IDL being used at a bunch of schools. Um, I, I develop a lot of the programs here, ensure that we're keeping up with best practice and generally innovate upon new ways to uh, remove barriers to education. Would you say your background leans more heavily toward literacy or are you a numbers guy? Have you always been a oh, math no, lover? No. <laughs> very, very much literacy. Uh, my okay. uh, my degree was actually in English literature. But we're going to talk about math today. And I'm yeah. wondering what your relationship with math has been. Not great. When I started working here and our numeracy program, one of the first tasks that I was given was to review the numeracy program to prepare it for the US and deployment there. And I spent months, about six, seven months, just poring over this thing. And genuinely, my mental arithmetic did actually improve. Really? So, okay. yeah, this is why I'm actually a big believer in it, because I came away and went, no, I'm actually, like, better. I'm still not exactly a savant, but, um, yeah. But IDL has a program specifically for kiddos who are or people, really, who are neurodivergent in their relationship to math and um, or, or maths. But so dyscalculia is not something that that we talk about commonly in the United States. I mean, we we understand dyslexia. We've been talking about dyslexia in educational circles for years, but we we haven't really talked about dyscalculia very much. Can you just explain to us what this is? And if you have some kind of a theory about why it's not more known and understood. There's a um, couple of theories on that front. Um, I will not claim ownership of any of them, but the one that I uh, ascribe to the most, actually, it's that where we are at now is basically where we were at with dyslexia 30 years ago. It is generally considered that we are about 30 years behind in dyscalculia research. So it's believed that around three to six percent of the population are actually dyscalculic to some extent. Huh. Mm. Within that, however, we also have some uh, facts with numeracy anxiety, maths anxiety. So it can make discerning whether it is a specific learning difficulty or this person 
is anxious because of their mathematical ability, or are they anxious about their mathematical ability because they have a specific learning difficulty, or they're just bad at maths and this forms a continuous cycle? So the research isn't there yet. When Luke says that the research around numeracy and dyscalculia is 30 years behind literacy research, he's describing the global status of numeracy research, not just in the United States. Many advances in research, knowledge, and best practices are happening in the UK, leading the way for educators here in the US and the rest of the world, which is why we were excited to learn from Luke about how the challenges of dyslexia and dyscalculia compare and how they play out differently in classrooms. So your, your, your stereotypical er example of dyslexia is letters moving around on a page and children being unable to read them. Dyscalculia has a variant of that called visual stress, which is more the physiological response to psychological stress. The way dyscalculia work is that there is no particular nodule in the brain that we know of that governs mathematical ability. We know which parts of the brain do sight, we know which does memory, we know which does emotions vaguely. The processes that deal with numeracy are distributed across the various hemispheres and portions of the brain that I am not a neuroscientist enough to uh, explain. But what this means is that nailing down when something is dyscalculia can be particularly problematic because it can impact on a number of different features, which is why we primarily refer to it as a disorganizing difficulty, if you will. In learners, it manifests as slow to reach milestones. They might still be counting on their fingers after a certain age. They struggle to remember what mathematical symbols mean. So far, a lot of this could just be lower ability at maths to an outside observer. Whereas what's going on within their brain is that they are less able to visualize mathematical problems. And you said that there are complicating factors because, you know, could it be that this student is struggling with math because they have math anxiety or do they have math anxiety because they have dyscalculia? As an educator, what helps us to sort through that to know how to best support that student? Butterworth uh, is one of the big names in Dyscalculia. He, he literally wrote the book. Um, and he has designed a screener that is pretty much the, the, the standard to the best of my knowledge. The researcher's full name is Brian Butterworth. He's a cognitive neuroscientist from the Institute of Education in London, England. He's written many books on maths and numeracy, but the one that Luke referred to is called Dyscalculia from Science to Education, and it's available along with all of Brian's writings and screeners at his website, which you will find linked in the episode notes. It identifies several mathematical strands that if children particularly struggle with, then they may well have dyscalculia. We call it dyscalculia te uh, dyscalculic tendencies ah. because any one of these things could be a difficulty with a particular form of um, numerical reasoning. It is when you view it in its totality from a, it's micro versus macro. Uh, when you look at it from the macro level and you say, ah, they are struggling in all of these areas, then that may be indicative of a special need. As I said before, the counting on the fingers is actually a pretty big clue in terms of their inability to visualize or conceptualize. One of the other ones uh, that always sticks in my mind is difficulty relating names and faces. Others include um, difficulty in concentration, counting back and forth, difficulty transcribing numbers accurately. 
So not quite numerical dyslexia, but certainly being unable to um, discern between a six or a nine. Yeah. Um, difficulty following instructions during games. And that can lead into if they're also physically disorganized or uh, uncoordinated. So many of the things Luke listed seem like things that many, if not most, students struggle with to some extent or another, which made me wonder about the correlation between dyscalculia and other learning challenges. Children with dyslexia, there are about 50-60% that do not have dyscalculia. So having one is not guaranteed to have the other, but you are obviously statistically more likely. You are? Yes. Okay. So... We're learning a lot about the brain, right? And I think there used to be this idea that if you were dyslexic, that you're you're born that way and it's a condition that you have, your brain is wired that way and there's nothing you can do about it, which we now know is not true. We, We know about neuroplasticity. We know that we can really rewire our brains in many ways. Uh, so I'm, I'm, suspecting that this is also true for dyscalculia, that there are things that people can do to help rewire their brains around these obstacles, is what are those? Okay. So interesting you raised um, neuroplasticity. A lot of the research indicates that that ends fairly early, not to say ends, the brain is infinitely more malleable in early years than it is towards later life. We start building those um, neural pathways at an earlier age where the brain is still um, forming at quite a rate. It is unlikely that we will ever be able to fully mitigate the effects or the disorganizing effects of dyscalculia, dyslexia. It, it can't be, and I'm making air quotes here on a podcast, cured. But what we can do is teach them framework and structure and methodologies to help, as I say, mitigate the worst of whatever degree of dyslexia or dyscalculia they might have. The forms that those can take are many and varied. In terms of the average day-to-day functionality of learners with dyscalculia, it has been shown that founding mathematical problems in school, which is obviously most of what we're talking about here with learners, has been to base that in actual scenario situations. So one of the methods of helping teach numeracy currency is to ground that in a a scenario. So Timmy goes to the shop, Timmy buys X, Y, and Z. How much does it cost? For some reason, that helps ground it more accurately in a slightly different portion of the long-term memory that has been less impacted by dyscalculia in general. Other really easy fixes that I've read about are graph paper. I'd always wondered exactly why graph paper was generally used in maths, other than obviously when you need to do a graph. I've I've since learned since becoming a teacher, that was obviously because you could put the numbers in each of those boxes and help structure your uh, addition, your subtraction, your your long-form mathematical sums. That level of granularity and organization is incredibly useful for learners with dyscalculia because Mm. it is to do with their working memory. I apologize if I'm talking to the the, the learned here and going over things that people already know. Repetition's always good. Yeah, exactly. That's uh, <laughs> the um, granularity structure means that they do not overload their working memory. Learners with dyscalculia actually have a less working memory or less efficient working memory, I should say, than a, uh, a neurotypical individual. 
also one of the reasons why they are more prone to uh, maths anxiety. Being able to break down each sum visually in front of them in boxes and then work their way sequentially through is a massive help to learners with dyscalculia. Mm -hmm. Having physical representations of items uh, or, or values that they can physically, kinesthetically manipulate mm -hmm. um, can be a real help. Digital learning is actually very useful. Um, you can have unlimited amounts of something on a screen. We call them math manipulatives, right? All the little yeah. things, you know, the erasers, the cubes, yeah, whatever yeah. it is that, you know, kids are handling. And typically they go away after the primary years, um, maybe first, second, possibly third grade. Is the helpfulness of a math manipulative decreased when you're working digitally because you're not actually touching it and handling it and sorting it? Touch screens have actually been more of a uh, game changer in that particular regard than yeah. laptops, ever was smart technology. What we've found is that the act of dragging things across the screen um, and that sort of thing, it's, again, not ideal, but it certainly has a close approximation of the same effect. There is still that hand-eye coordination, further uh, building of the neural network. That does make sense because you are actually moving it from one place to another, you know, yes. with your with your hand, even though you're not holding the item. And you said you said some of this already, too. But I just to be very explicit for our listeners, because we're so far behind on the research for dyscalculia, we maybe have been experiencing the impacts of this in classrooms without really being aware of, you know, what was hindering these learners for a long time. What what have we been seeing in classrooms that we didn't know was was dyscalculia? Presentations will vary a lot, curricular milestones and the like. Mm -hmm. But it wouldn't have just been not reaching those targets. There would have been um, other things. I've already touched on the difficulty remembering names and the right. like. If a student is particularly egregiously averse to wanting to do math then they will have developed a, a visceral reaction to wanting to undertake, mm. or rather not wanting to undertake, math problems. Previously, we could have put that down to, as I say, poor ability or just, I don't want to. Mm -hmm. There is now that third option of, are these first two caused by dyscalculia? There is not a massive comorbidity correlation between ADHD and dyscalculia, but certain elements that might have originally been assumed to be ADHD may in fact have been dyscalculia. I yeah. don't think that the reverse would be true. Dots to numbers is the other big one, subitizing. I know I've touched on that briefly before, but like being able to innately recognize four dots on a cube, a I on a, a D6, a, a six-sided dice, and then not having to go one, two, three, for, but having that pattern stored within the brain and being able to access it quickly. Talk again about the prevalence. You said it You said it was one of the first things you said, and it was yes. kind of a so, shocking statistic. Three to six percent of the population. Yeah. Okay. About 40 to 50 percent of people with dyslexia do not have a problem with maths. So hmm. arguably 50-50. Yeah. And the other 50 um, do. Yes, and then the other 50 do, yeah. Those people 
who that 50% who have dyslexia and dyscalculia, are the interventions different or are the interventions that they're receiving for dyslexia also addressing their challenges with dyscalculia or do they need something more? Yes and no. In an ideal world, they will be receiving separate interventions for dyscalculia and dyslexia in both numeracy and literacy independently. They don't tend to massively impact upon each other. Like a dyscalculic difficulty will be towards numeracy near exclusively. Dyslexia, I'm you would struggle with written form mathematical problems. So like your, your long form scenario based uh mathematical problems like two trains heading toward each other at this speed and this speed they depart you know it's that old chestnut that particular one is going to struggle with both elements of that in that first they need to decode that and then they need to solve the actual numbers problem within it a combined approach would just generally not be a benefit to either i think yeah so that is tricky i mean it didn't surprise me when you said that story problems tend to be helpful for people with dyscalculia, because we we know from a lot of a whole, whole another field of research that our brains are wired for story, and that narrative always helps us remember things. But the, I wasn't thinking about that being just the double challenge for students with both issues happening. I want to make sure that we've talked about what those early interventions look like and how they how they can help students. You talked about the graph paper. Are there other forms of early intervention that we should know about that we haven't talked about yet? Um, I mean, obviously, there's us. Um, (laughs) (laughs) In that um, we built a numeracy program that is fundamentally designed to help learners with dyscalculia. Um, It does help general low-ability learners as well. But a lot of the kinesthetic elements, like I touched on before with the touchscreen and everything, minimum confusion. Obviously, we are not the only people out there that have a digital platform to help learners. The way that we had specifically designed it includes a minimalist approach. Whilst it is still engaging to the children to uh, put upon the what the specialist called the effective domain, keeps them interested, keeps them motivated, keeps them, as I say, you know, engaged and activated with the program in a state of flow. What this doesn't do is overcrowd them with moving pictures or loud noises or sparkly features that basically don't need to be there. It is just gamey enough to keep them involved whilst engaging in a structured spiral curriculum that will really nail down the absolute fundamental basics and then build on it. So it'll cover all primary years and it can be deployed in the earlier years of secondary. If those children did not get this level of intervention earlier on. And it's adaptive for yes. individual learners. So it, it personalizes each learner. It does. Halfway. Yes. The way that particular uh, element works, it's that it is the original placement test is entirely online. It's digital. The program will then ascertain that they are this capable. They will then work through, as I said, the the structured methodology. So there is a certain amount of independent learning that can take place. Obviously, again, referring to that ideal world, it would always be great if there is a TA or a teacher nearby that can sit with them take explicit note of which parts they are struggling with and then deploy specific targeted 
separate interventions based on that as well. But regrettably, we do not live in an uh, ideal world with unlimited people and unlimited time. So yes, as you rightly say, they can um, sit and work through this at an independent rate. Okay. And I mean, especially, I don't know if you're experiencing this in the UK, but we're having a teacher crisis here in the United States, (laughs) teacher shortages following the pandemic. So many teachers left the profession and we just don't have a lot of up and coming new teachers. It's not a profession that we, that people are, that our young people are choosing at the rate that we need them to. Um, And so we have less and less one-to-one attention for the students who need it. And so this could be a remedy in some ways for that. Those students could still be getting pretty personalized attention, right? With the platform. Um, I'm curious too about this being a class-wide intervention because we we've we always know that the things that help struggling learners tend to be the things that help all learners. It's called proportional universalism. The idea behind it is that whilst a intervention should be designed to be accessible to everybody, but it will raise the lowest ability the highest, but everybody should still be able to benefit from it. Okay. So in our case, ideal numeracy is extensionally designed for children with low ability and more explicitly um, dyscalculia, but it makes an excellent revision tool for those who do not suffer from those difficulties. Mm-hmm. In terms of the teacher crisis and the lack of resources and it being deployed as a whole class activity, again, I think in that particular regard, yes, absolutely, it does provide a stable, measured, consistent platform that can be delivered across the board by anybody mm-hmm. um, to a, an exacting standard of uh, numerical uh, practice and pedagogy. But at the same time, does not fill the same, it, it fills some of the roles like a TA and a teacher. So progress is still being made. It does not exist in a vacuum. There will always need to be a physical human element beyond that. Luke emphasized that while IDL does not provide a digital teacher per se, it does support students in a personalized, adaptive way that minimizes the requirement for one-to-one instruction, traditionally required by most intervention models and resources. I asked him if the platform supports students with math's anxiety, and if so, how, given the fact that this is often hard to distinguish from dyscalculic tendencies. No time limits. When I described it as gaming earlier, it is intention designed to be not distracting and not pressuring. Mm. The independent learning means that they are able to proceed at their own pace. They have a, a star mechanism. It will uh, The first two answers that they do incorrectly will not cost them a star. Each subsequent one will detract a star. That is for both measurement use and a certain amount of um, intrinsic motivation. Again, game theory, more stars I get, the better I feel about myself. Mm, True. Um, Yeah. This will help support and overcome those elements of anxiety that I touched upon. The function of the game theory, I suppose, is to gradually instill in them the idea that their self-worth is separate from their ability to do mathematics. Mm. Um, This touches on a much larger thing about a holistic approach to to well-being in schools and the like. 
which should permeate every element of their education. Setting aside a little bit of activity every day for some mindfulness is good. Being able to integrate this sort of thing into every element of every lesson is superb. Is so much better. Yeah. Yes. Fundamentally, the program, in in specific regard to uh, numeracy slash maths anxiety, I use the two fairly interchangeably. It's technically numeracy anxiety, but let's be honest, math anxiety rolls off the tongue a little easier. The program does take that into account with, as I say, the the non-pressuring, the independent learning, and generally giving them an opportunity to feel like they are taking ownership of their own learning, that they are able to work through this at their own ability level. Can you share a success story from your work with students with these kinds of challenges? I was at a relatively rural local school fairly close to maximum capacity and there were a couple of young lads who had fallen behind in terms of their literacy not to mention their um, behavior records were less than stellar so when i started working i was brought on as a one-to-one and this quickly became a kind of one-to-two and then a a one-to-small intervention group for uh, literacy and then later numeracy which is where this particular anecdote gains relevance At that time, ideal numeracy wasn't quite existent. However, what we did there together with an element of, it was a combination really of those same practicals, the the manipulatives that we had to hand. We also then began to integrate to deal with larger numbers. We would have, okay, so we've got enough cubes to kind of do lower, lower values. But what about when we start getting into larger chunks of like a hundreds? Okay, please. So what we begin to do was teach them that symbolic representations of values do not have to be numbers. They can be a a stegosaurus. This stegosaurus is worth 100. Okay, Uh, we don't have another stegosaurus. Okay, this uh, giraffe. Okay, so we're just going to say animals are worth 100 each. And for some reason, that got them. It clicked they could begin to associate numerical values with abstract concepts Mm -hmm. that they could go, all right, so an animal is worth a hundred. So I have a giraffe, a dinosaur, two sheep and a horse. Okay. Well, that's, that's 500. Okay. It was absolutely breathtaking to see the the wheels beginning to spin there. Do you think Uh, it was the image that they had an image instead of just a number? I think so. I think it's yeah. hard. I mean, numbers are ultimately fictional. They are they are a construct that has been yeah. designed to represent whatever we want them to be. The number 100 could be 100 pounds. It could be 100 tweets. Mm-hmm. In of itself, they lack context. I think it is, yes, that, that sense that they can apply context, relevance, and meaning towards something they can understand is a thing. Yeah. Um, they, they, they might still understand, okay, it's still a toy dinosaur at the end of the day but it is worth 100 of whatever I choose it to be. I would love for you to talk to the listener who is who is right now um, a classroom teacher or administrator or instructional coach and thinking, how can I get my kiddos set up with this kind of tool or intervention? Where do I go? What do I do? What does it cost? Who is it for? What age groups? All of that. Okay. So, hello, listener. 
Um, <laughs> I suddenly feel like a late night um, I know. radio host. Yeah, you yeah. Can put on your radio host voice and tell uh, us now. Yeah. Um, so first things first, IDLS supply interventions for dyscalculic, dyslexic, and other specific learning difficulties. The long form is International Dyslexia Learning Solutions. Um, it normally just gets short to IDL. Our uh, customer service team navigate to uh, uh, an understanding of your particular school's pricing structure. Um, we do offer different uh, levels for very small schools and mainstream schools. And it's for every grade band, K through it 12. It is for every grade band. Yep, every single strand of math. What you may see over time is that we are implementing new features. Obviously, we have our MTC, which I don't believe is necessarily a thing in the US. MTC what is that? stands for Multiplication Tables Check. Oh, no, that's not a thing. No, here <laughs> it has been fairly recently implemented as a, a check for year four students to okay. ensure that they that they know their multiplication tables check. This is this is from high. It is mandated. So we built a program that would help test and prepare them for the actual government website. This also has the added effect of being an excellent revision and practice tool for general uh, abilities with multiplication. Nice. Um, also free, as are our dyscalculia and dyslexia screens. Okay. So helpful. So helpful. We, we like to think so. We like yeah. to think so. We'll um, make sure that um, all of those links are in the episode notes too, just to make you. it super easy for listeners. And they can also find you at, at, at Curation too. So we'll yes, they can. make sure they know. Um, and soon we will be having IDL Wellbeing. Oh, really? Oh, yes. Tell it's us about off. that. What is that? <laughs> um, using a lot of the uh, research that I've touched upon here, right. um, as well as a lot of other um, emerging practice, we are building a whole school approach integration platform it is designed to help children gain captaincy of their emotional journey okay. um, it will help uh, develop emotional toughness and resilience it will teach them mindfulness and it will also function as an excellent de-escalation activity for those that don't necessarily have these same uh behavioral difficulties yeah. across all of primary and indeed um, a lot of secondary we are teaching them mindfulness by uh, inspiring healthy habits. So good. Will you be offering bundles? For uh, almost not at all. Yes. yes. Good. Okay. Good to know. As mentioned, you can connect to International Dyslexia Learning Solutions (IDL for short) by searching IDL or IDLS at edcuration.com or by simply clicking the link in the episode notes. You'll also find links for all of the researchers mentioned in the episode, their websites, and their resources. If you have a topic or resource you'd like to share with the Ed Curation podcast audience, please reach out to us through the comments or through our website at edcuration.com. While you're there, be sure to set up your own dashboard where you can save your favorite resources and professional learning explorations. We do all the legwork for you to find the highest quality, most evidence-based instructional resources and tech tools, and then making all the relevant information available in an easy to search one-stop shopping site. We hope you'll join us again next week to learn about another important tool or topic on the Ed Curation Podcast, where we're reshaping learning.